everybody, I'm Debbie Montgomery Johnson, the founder of the nonprofit The Woman Behind the Smile, and your host of Stand Up and Speak Up, a show that is about each and every one of us. Many of us have something, something we're hiding, something we're ashamed of, something that through no fault of our own or through our own making, we keep hidden, and that in turn keeps us hidden from each other and the world. Good people go through terrible situations. Wise people know when and how to let it go. And everything that happens to us helps it grow, yet while it may be hard to see it right away, the most important thing to do is to change your perception about your circumstances. Regardless of what your personal experiences or traumas have been, this showcase series is designed to ignite the light in you, as well as providing safe harbor, education, personal growth, and resources so that no matter where you are on your journey, you'll have the courage to move on when you're ready. Stand Up and Speak Up features ordinary people who've been through extraordinary situations and struggles and found the courage to step out from behind their smiles and speak up about those experiences and the lessons gleaned from them. Everybody heals at a different pace, and we recognize that. So come on in, have a listen, and enjoy the ride at your own speed. Good morning, good afternoon, wherever you are listening to this. Thank you for being here. It is a beautiful day in paradise, and I love to say that for, for my Canadian friends. It's a beautiful day in South Florida. It's a little bit warm, but that's okay. We love it. And I'm really so grateful to have everybody here today. Um, before I start the show today, though, I do want to say a friend of mine, Marty Ward. Marty's been a guest on our show. She had a, a, has a wonderful children's um, organization called Confidence Build Success. It's all about combating bullying and she did a lot of work over in Africa. I just got word that Marty is actually in the hospital and was diagnosed with cancer. So this, this group today I know has a bunch of mighty prayer warriors and I, I ask that you, uh, you know, send, send a little prayer up uh, on behalf of Marty Ward and if you get a chance go to our Stand Up and Speak Up on YouTube and, and watch her her video um, that she did the interview with me. It was marvelous. She, she was doing some marvelous work with, with kids and, um, and acting against bullying. So uh, please keep her in your, in your thoughts today. The other thing is we love to communicate and connect around the world. And uh, I'm actually participating in a, a summit, a women's summit in New Zealand starting tomorrow. It's called Rockin' Midlife with Kat Colucci and it, you can see it at rockingmidlife.com. I don't usually, you know, talk about these things, but Kat's, Kat, my experience interviewing with Kat and being in, with her uh, across the pond was extraordinary. And we want to support women uh, around the world with, with what they're doing and what we are doing. So go to rockingmidlife.com and uh, sign up. It's a free summit and it goes through the weekend. Some really fun women speakers that are going to be on. So, moving on to our show today, Stand Up and Speak Up. We have a great guest, and I want her just to take a deep breath, because yesterday I felt like she was a little bit nervous about this. This show, it's a conversation, and it's just a conversation, and it's fun, but we've got some really good information to get out. So, everybody, please welcome Ms. Michelle Nelson. Michelle, you there? Yes, I'm here. Hi. Hey, hon. Thank you so much for being with us today. She's a North Carolina girl, and you know, I tell teasing her that you know goes back to my Tar Heel days when I was in college, and uh, I was just up in North Carolina, up in Hendersonville, and I loved it. Uh, it was a little bit cold for me this couple of weeks ago, 
Um, but it's beautiful. It's beautiful. So thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Michelle and I uh, participated in a women's conference called Faith Over Fear. And it's been a couple of years now. I was in Atlanta and then down in Miami, and it was with Monica Walker. Yes, Monica Walker. Mm -hmm. Monica Walker, and I, there's too many women to name. Um, I did have a couple of the gals on as other guests, and so much fun. And yes. that's when I realized that each and every one of us has a story that would m blow others' minds, you know? And we, it, but what was amazing to me is that no one wanted to tell what was happening in their lives until that group. And then right. one, one started to talk, then another started to talk, and then the stories came out. What an amazing opportunity to, to stand up and speak up. And, Michelle, i got to tell people about you because our show is not necessarily about you, although it's going to be that way. Um, I want them to know what a fantastic woman you are. And you sent me your bio. You've become a motivational speaker over the years, but you had spent most of your working life in the fashion industry. And yes. I want to say here that she, um, you had experience in the fashion industry to include an assistant editor for iFashion Magazine in New York. You're the assistant director of the Carolina Girls Rock Pageant and the Miss Flawless 2019. Oh, that was you. You were Miss Flawless 2019? Yes. <laughs> that was my title, yes. Well, that's terrific. Um, you're a former professional model, fashion show producer, event planner, runway choreographer. You're one busy fashion lady. <laughs> I have had a long career in fashion. Oh, my gosh, it's been forever. I think I started modeling when I was nine. Wow. Well, you guys, take a look. She's a beautiful woman inside and out. Um, she would probably tell you that one of her greatest things is being a mom and a grand, a glamma. That's right, glamma. <laughs> a glamma to two beautiful little princesses and four handsome princes. So you have six little grandkids. Grandbabies, yes, I do. Oh, my goodness. Nothing greater, huh? They are amazing. Um, they, the youngest, well, she's actually not the youngest. My granddaughter, Alea, is the one that's always here because her dad is um, Jabari, the one that was in the accident. So I spend the most time with her. And when I tell you, she's a mini-me times 10, but she's also her dad times 10, which is a weird combination. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm usually dads get payback. <laughs> oh, he's getting it for sure. <laughs> How old is she? She's two. She'll two. be three Ooh, in that. September. Okay. And so. she acts. She definitely acts like she's about twenty-five. She's very articulate, very smart. Can hold a grown conversation and will tell you about yourself. Well, <laughs> just wait till she's sixteen. Woo! Payback. Oh, yeah. So I always like to start the show with you telling and my guest telling our audience a little bit about you because many of the people don't know who you are. So can you kind of give me a synopsis of who is Michelle, where did you grow up, your family situation, brothers, sisters, and uh, we'll go from there. Okay, great. Um, Michelle Nelson. I am originally from Charlotte, North Carolina. My father uh, was in the military in the Army. So I grew up overseas, mainly in Germany. Um, we've been to so many different military um, bases. So I kind of have a 
a worldwide, I guess, um, array of knowledge here of, or experience rather, not necessarily, but it's been, um, I've traveled all over. I've lived in Italy. I've lived in Louisiana. I've lived in Georgia, New York. Um, I've been to um, the Berlin Wall. I've done so many different things overseas in Paris and Milan, you know, just Spain everywhere. <laughs> um, my family, my mother and father both retired in Augusta, Georgia. My, I have two sisters. One lives in Atlanta, Georgia. One lives in Augusta, Georgia. Um, my nieces, nephews, brother-in-laws. Um, I have three boys. My oldest is 32. His name is Taiwan. My middle son is Jabari, who's 26. And I have an 11-year-old son named Tyler. Whoa. So plus my six grandchildren from my two grown sons. <laughs> I stay busy. <laughs> That's why you look so young. One quick question. Did you ever yes. get a chance to live in Wiesbaden? I live in Würzburg, in Wiesburg. Okay. That's in Prosselheim in Germany is where we lived off base, but the base was in Würzburg. Okay. So, I but was, I've been to Wiesbaden. We used to have softball tournaments there. <laughs> I was stationed there. Um, oh, actually, okay. right, right before the wall went down. And uh, mm. I moved, because your, your oldest is about the same age as my, well, a little bit, a couple years younger than my oldest. But yeah, we were over there for for three years, uh, right before the wall went down, and uh, yep. amazing amazing experience. So we so went through the wall. Mm -hmm. As a yeah. child, we went to visit the wall, and they had those strict rules: you couldn't point, you couldn't do with this, you couldn't do that. You had to kind of stand there. So it was a little frightening at first, but it was an experience. <laughs> you know, I felt felt the exact same way because we actually went into East Berlin, but I was in my uh, I was in the Air Force. Uh, I had to go in in my uniform, and boy, I felt like I was being watched every move, which I was. But yes, you were. <laughs> it, it was scary. It was scary. So it makes you appreciate home. So you are a well-traveled woman. Yes. And that's that's wonderful. Uh, when you were a young girl, what did you like to do? Because you ultimately went into fashion. But was that something that you liked as a child, or? I did. I have aunt. Well, I have an aunt. She was taking classes. I think it was at Barbizon or John Casablanca when I was like seven or eight years old. And when we moved back to Charlotte, I would go to her classes with her. And it was like the first time I had been experienced to um, exposed to modeling. And I fell in love. And I picked up. And I was trying to do everything that she did. And that's what started my, my love for, for the runway. And, and at nine years old and you're being told that you're great at it, it's kind of what you stick to. <laughs> so I was wearing heels and, you know, high school because it was just something about that, you know, that look and how you carry yourself and your posture and making sure that, you, you know, you keep your posture straight and everything. And so she also taught me about, you know, etiquette and how to take care of myself and things like that, her and my mother. So... That has always been, I think, my first love was the, mod the, the fashion industry and being a model. That's a very difficult uh, career for young girls, isn't it? Yes, it is. <laughs> and you kind of explain that because, you know, I work in a world where young women can be taken advantage of and, and it, you've got to be really careful, uh, especially as a, as a mother in that world, not to 
project. But how, how did your family um, deal with you in that modeling situation? Well, I, the thing about my family is we're very close-knit. We have a very, um, I guess, a, a Christian praying family. And one of the things that I don't think I ever had to experience is some of the things that the young ladies have gone through dealing with, um, you know, producers or men that would try to take advantage or people, period, men and women would take advantage of models when they're young. But my family was right up front and, and present. So I didn't have those experiences. You know, everything went through my mother even when I was overseas. So I don't, I can't speak on that, but I am aware, I guess, in my adult years, dealing with, dealing with some models, training models who went through things, were taking advantage of, um, you know, people wanting to just take their pictures for a, a, a grand sum amount, a lot of money that didn't provide anything but pictures and made promises that they couldn't keep. But that was just how things were a long time ago. I know they say it's still kind of like that, but if you know the business and you study and you do your homework, you can't, you can't get taken advantage of if you are informed. And that was one of the things that I tried to do in my career is to make sure that the models that I trained or the models that I coached or worked with were informed. I made it my business to know the rules and the regulations, to know what you could and could not do, and to stay away from the people who were just trying to exploit you. Okay, because it's, it's tough. We don't want the young women, you know, hurt in any way, mentally, physically, or whatever. And then, you know, given this idea that, that they're the greatest thing since sliced bread, but then right. taken advantage of. And, and they're beautiful. Now, a lot of the pageants, and we'll go into this briefly, though, it's, it's about education, though. It's not necessarily just a, a, fa a fashion thing or beauty thing. Can you kind of explain you know, how the education part comes in? Because that is very valuable. Well, with the educational part, um, as a part, as a director for Carolina Girls Rock, one of the things that Rock Pageant is, one of the things that we do with our young ladies ages 5 to 19, we make sure that we instill the self-love, the um, um, self-building up their self-esteem, their, their courage, giving them the courage and the, the strength to believe in themselves and to love themselves and to, to, to deal with their inner beauty instead of worrying about what the outer beauty looks like. Yes, you take care of yourself. Yes, we talk about, you know, your health and, and staying fit and eating healthy and taking care of your skin, but it doesn't matter what size you are. That's not the focal point. It's who you are inside, how you present yourself, being able to hold a conversation, being able to interview and speak to people with eye-to-eye -eye contact and knowing who you are. Those are the educational things that we, the fundamental educational things that we try to teach our young ladies. And some of them are, right now, I think we have about four or five of our, our pageant queens who've won the pageant who are now best-selling authors. And mm. they're, still, they're still, they're not even over 12. <laughs> wow. So it's important to teach you know, the, the self-confidence, the, the self-love, your self-worth, knowing that you can do and be anything that you want to be. So that's kind of where our training is now, and that's what I stand on and our philosophy for what we teach these young women who go into 
the modeling, who go into the bigger pageants. It's about who you are and making sure that you hold yourself accountable. It doesn't, we make sure that they don't wear makeup, the younger ones, they cannot wear makeup. So you've got to be able to be comfortable in your skin and know what that is. And we, you know, we, we, we encourage our young women to make sure that that's their, their foundation. And the parents love it. They, we have some girls that have been with us since they were four years old. And they stay. So I, I think that's a, a great thing nowadays, the focus point being. Well, I honor you for that uh, because it, it does start with the self-esteem. And, and I remember, you know, listening to the women in, in the faith. Um, fear. Uh, so many of the stories of women our age came from not really having the self-esteem and the self-love when we were young, young women. And exactly. led to abuse and, and different things that that took place, and then we just kept quiet about it. And right. I think in my, my daughter's case, I actually put her in karate. She became a, a two-stripe black belt because I said, Jenny, if you ever want to date at, at 16, you have to have your black belt. Um, right. I wanted her protected, you know, and she was a very active physical girl, and so. I think by giving your girls that foundation, that that gives them a leg up, and they may not, you know, stand. They won't stand for the abuse because they'll recognize it, right. uh, and feel comfortable in themselves. So that's wonderful. And I'm looking at the picture of you, which it's one of your uh, glam pictures, and I'm thinking, <laughs> what a beautiful glamma. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> thank you for doing that and and for providing a safe place for the for your young women. Um, now, our show today, well, I, I named it Flawlessly Flawed to encourage, uplift, and inspire. Where did you come up with the flawless? Where did it come from? Flawlessly Flawed came through, I guess, a poem that I was writing, and I had a conversation with God, and I was looking at how perfect God is, right? And when you have a relationship with him, and you understand who God is in your life, you understand that he's perfect and he's flawless. Everything about him is flawless. And he created us in his image. And so being flawless people, humans that he created, we still are in sin. No matter what people are going to sin, we are flawed. And that's kind of where that name come, came from because through Christ we're flawless. In his eyes when when Jesus, Jesus washed away our sins, he made us flawless in his eyes. But as people, as humans, we're still flawed. So that's kind of where that flawlessly flawed came from. <laughs> so but, you're, but you're, you want people to understand that in spite of our flaws, we yep. still can be wonderful, inspired, encouraged, uplifted, be extraordinary. It's just Absolutely. we're on our path to perfection. We're just not there. Absolutely. Absolutely, and, and so that's the, and that became the foundation of, of what you teach the girls, and, and that, that's what you speak about now. Yes, that is what um, my I guess my purpose has been to share my faith, um, allow people to see the things, the trials and the tribulations that I've gone through, um, in hopes that it can help someone else recognize what they're going through and realize that they have the strength to make it through as long as they trust in God and they have that faith and they have to exercise that faith. They have to activate it. Okay. And we're going to, that'll segue into your story about Jabari because 
I mean, you've got three three kids, right? Three kids? Yeah, three boys. Yeah, the three boys. Um, Jabari is the same age as my youngest son. Uh, football player, grew up very strong young man, right? Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah, he, the middle child, but he was the youngest for a very long time. Obviously, your 11-year-old. <laughs> years later. <laughs> that was kind of a bump. later. <laughs> You know, which is really linked to it because I remember my youngest always wanting a younger brother. And I'm like, oh. sorry, bud, you're not going to get it out of me. You might. Jabari wanted that so bad. He wanted that so bad. But I, it came from because in between Jabari and Tyler, I lost three babies okay. at, at 20, 19, 20 weeks pregnant. So we went through several losses. Um, and that was kind of the, the motivating factor for Jabari because he's like, I, I really want a sibling. I really want a little brother. And it happened. And by, it was a miracle. Tyler was, Tyler was completely a miracle because I did not think that I would ever be able to have any kids, any more kids. Um, I'm just having this stupor of thought when you said that because my show last week was with a gal named Elizabeth Myers and Elizabeth and I both lost babies. Um, she lost one at 14 weeks. I lost one at 19. And mm -hmm. our whole show last week was about that, about how uh, it's so difficult to speak about a child that you lose um, that it was even hard to describe, you know, that they were, they died pre-born. It's kind of an odd way to put it, but She's right. like, it's not a miscarriage. She goes, I didn't drop my baby. I didn't lose my baby. I know where he is. Um, mm -hmm. But in her case, she actually delivered, and they treated her like it wasn't a baby. So mm. I didn't know that you'd gone through that, and I, I'm very sorry for for your loss on that. Because, um, mm -hmm. I, I, I mean, I know personally it's, it's one of those things that it just takes you by surprise because a miscarriage prior to nine weeks, I always think, is, kind of considered regular if you're going to have a miscarriage. But that second right. trimester uh, loss is really difficult. difficult. How did you deal with that? I, I, I was going to talk I, about story, but we're going to do about this for a minute. Okay. I, um, it was very difficult because, you know, I, my first child after Jabari was a little girl, and I had wanted a little girl. You know, that was like all I had been dreaming about. When I found out it was a little girl, I was elated. And about two weeks later, something happened, and I had to – I developed an infection. Um, I had to deliver her, and it was a life-or-death situation. I didn't want to let her go. If I didn't let them take her, then I would die as well. Mm -hmm. um, so that decision had to be made by my then husband, who was not there. He was overseas. He was in the military as well. And they took her. I had to, I had to, have, I had to have her. I had to deliver her. All three of the babies I actually had to deliver. You know, mm -hmm. they have names. I had to hold them. I had to bury them. Oh. So it's not a miscarriage, and a lot of people have that misconception. It's a loss. You, you lost your child, and you still have to grieve because you carried that baby for five months. Yep. And you're showing and you're very pregnant and you look pregnant and you feel pregnant. And so it's not just like, oh, well, it's, you know, it's, we're six weeks in. I can't even tell. Nobody knew. And you move on. A lot of people do, but it's hard. And so I lost myself with her for about a year and a half. I was mad at God. I turned my back. I didn't go to church. I turned away from my family because I was so depressed. 
I didn't understand why he would have taken her away from me. And then after the second, I got pregnant again, maybe two years later. Um, my husband, of course, is still in the military. He, we, he was in the military the whole time, but he was away in school. And I lost the second one. The first one was 19 weeks and five days. The second loss was 19 weeks and three days. The third loss was 19 weeks and one day. And so as you can imagine, still having to deliver these children, someone would say, oh, well, you should stop trying. You're just putting yourself through turmoil and and all of this other stuff. And it was just a difficult time. But after the second loss, I turned back to God. And I learned my minister at the time, I was here in Charlotte, he sent me to this foundation called Kindermorn, an amazing organization that helps you deal with grief and deal with loss. And they put me in a, in a support group with other parents who had just lost a baby. We were all there together and all newly lost kids. And what I learned in there was that they had lost probably as many as I had. Um, and we all shared the same pain. And it was easier to talk about it. And one way to deal with it is was to talk about it and to, you know, give our children, make sure that our children's legacy lived on and make sure that we talked about it and make sure that we, you know, we honored them every year and throughout the year and talked, you know, and, and kept their names in our hearts. But still being able to move on and be healthy and still be vibrant and still give to our other children. And everyone in that group has had children since including myself, and mine was a miracle. I wasn't expecting to have him. He was actually a shock. (laughs) And I was in New York with him, with Tyler, and I had a specialist who helped me get through it. But my my reason they kept telling me was that I had an incompetent cervix, and that wasn't the case. I had what they called thrombophilia, which was a blood clotting disorder. And so with the specialist in New York, I had to take shots every week, I had to be monitored. I, I literally, Tyler has a photo album of ultrasound pictures. Oh, wow. <laughs> so every week I had doctor's appointments, and Tyler came at 36 weeks healthy, perfectly fine. And the funny thing about it with God is thrombophilia is usually a blood clotting disorder that you have for life. I have friends who have it, who's had it, don't have any kids, and they have to deal with that for life. I only had it while I was pregnant. So that lets me know (laughs) that it was not time for my other three babies because of the things that I was going through, but it was time for Tyler and he, he made it through. So he's my, he's my rainbow baby. And that has carried me on throughout my life and just my faith in God and understanding that every person has a purpose and every child has a purpose. And if it's in God's time, it's going to be in God's time. And there's all we can do is trust him and have faith in him that he's making the right decisions for us. And then it becomes, I won't say easy, but it's a lot less painful. Well, and I, I'm really glad to hear that there was that support group because when Elizabeth and I were talking last week, neither one of us had had a support group. And we both have had children, you know, we had children after the fact also, but during that time, no one talked about it. And right. no one knew how to talk about it. And, and our husbands were both in the military. Um, and she made, I always uh, liked talking about, you know, how did the husbands react to it? 
Um, and she said for her husband, it was more like he was grieving the loss of a stranger, where mm. she was grieving the loss of a child, which as a mom, you know, we've, it, it, there's a difference. And, and I, right. I think the same with my husband, too. It, it, you know, after a while, they're kind of like, well, come on, move on. You know, it's, it's right. over. Move on. It's over with. Did, did you have that, any of that experience? I, I didn't at first because um, it was, it would have been my husband, my then husband's first child, and he was not there, but he was the one who had to make the decision to choose me or lose us both. Oh, wow. And it was a difficult thing for him, so he also went through that grieving phase, but he dealt with it in a different way, and that is actually kind of what started our, our division in our marriage. Um, it definitely separated us, and he went on and did the things that he needed to do throughout his career, but I was still stuck. And so that kind of drove a wedge in between us. And if you don't have a foundation, uh, a spiritual foundation and a connection through God, that's what's going – that can happen. I, don't, I can't speak for anybody else, but that's what happened for me. <laughs> did he join the support group too, or was it just you? He, he came to one meeting. <laughs> He came to the first meeting, and after that, he didn't. The other husbands actually were there every time. He did not. Yeah. He couldn't deal with it. He was like, I can't, I'm not, mm -mm." Oh, well, that's one way of dealing with it, but it really doesn't deal with it, and and that does break up up a lot of families. So you've you've felt the loss of a child, multiple now. So let's fast forward to to Jabari. Tell me the story of Jabari. You know what? He seems like a phenomenal young man. So he'd gotten through college and was well he on his way. He's an amazing young man, and he—it's um, funny with him because he's always been my 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 sidekick. <laughs> my yeah. oldest son was always gone and traveling and doing he's a free spirit so he was doing his own thing so it was usually just me and Jabari but Jabari was my football player he started playing football in all sports actually at the age of four and that's all he you know that's all he thought about was football and and science stuff my mother used to work at a science store and that's all he was he was fascinated with science and astrology and he loved football and basketball and anything else that contained the ball but he went on through high school playing, and he went to college. He went to Reinhardt University first, and then he transferred to North Carolina Central. Um, his whole dream was wanting to be in the NFL. The funny, there's a funny story really quick going back when he was five. For his graduation, for kindergarten, all Jabari wanted was his own football player, his own NFL player, a real one, and to go eat all you can eat crab legs. And I, he hates when I tell this story, but it's the funniest thing because that's what he wanted. And so I provided that with him. I had some friends that were in the league, and um, Ernie Mills was one of the players who actually lived in Charlotte. I think he was playing for Dallas at the time. And he played football with him in his backyard and showed him all his trophies and everything, and he truly fell in love with the game then. That's kind of what set his path. And so he knew he wanted to be in the NFL from age five. And so that was what his journey was. We did combines. We did football camps. You know, I, I supported him in all of the things that he wanted to do. When we moved to New York, I wanted him to model. 
that was what I was like, okay, you can make money now modeling. You know, you've got Tommy Hilfiger putting you on a fashion show, and you want to go finish your football game. And I was really upset with him, but he, you know, he's strong-willed and strong-minded, and that's what he chose to do. And so I said, okay, it's your choice. So just being able to support him and push him through his dreams and his career was my main goal, and that's exactly what I did. Um, when he graduated from college, he was trying out for different teams. And from transferring from Reinhardt to North Carolina Central, I felt like he had a the, the, the bottom end of the stick. He had a bad deal dealing with the coaches because the coach that recruited him to the new college left the day he got there. Mm-hmm. And so now the other coaches don't really know who he is. He didn't get as much playing time, so his chances of getting seen by an NFL scout during the pro the pro scout things that they did were slim to none. He had to constantly work to prove himself. And, you know, what I appreciated him was how hard he fought, always, always a fighter, always determined to fulfill his dreams. And even when things didn't happen, he still was able to press through. He ended up being signed to an arena football team here called the Carolina Energy right before COVID happened. Um, then he, COVID stopped that season. Then they were bought by the new owners, um, Thomas Davis and Ted Ginn Jr. and Joe Moss, along with the head coach, Urban Bryson. He, they changed the name to Charlotte Thunder. Um, so he signed again with a new team. And then his accident happened before the season even started. So let's go to the accident. He's 25 years old. Was it during the day, at night? Kind of give me a feeling of what what was going on. So Jabari would, he's been working third shift for probably two years now. And so he would get off at like 8 o'clock in the morning. He had a very strict routine. Um, he was um, rooming with one of our one of his cousins. He has a a dog who is more like his son <laughs> um, that he takes care of. Loves the dog since he was born. He treated him like a baby. He normally goes home. He would normally go home, let King out, feed him. Then he would either go to sleep for a few hours or he would go to the gym and work out and train depending on what day of the week it was. He also um, coached kids youth, youth football and he coached, um, he did his own athletic training. So usually around 2 o'clock every day he had kids that he was training and mentoring and then he would work out. And he would, You know, he had a strict routine. So, and normally he would call me in the morning before he would go to sleep or right after he woke up. And the night before, it was just kind of ironic. He texted me um, at 12.51 a.m. I'll never forget it. And it just said, night, mom, love you. Just random. I hadn't talked to him since earlier that day. And I, was, and I said, good night, son of mine, love you more. And that was the last time I spoke to him. I got up that morning. I texted him, and he didn't respond. I was like, well, he might have. He probably went to sleep about 10 a.m., 11 a.m., I hadn't heard back from him, um, texted him, he didn't respond. And I think I laid down, took a nap, woke up about 5 o'clock, 
texting him again saying, you know, where are you? How come you haven't answered me? And I went through probably for an hour calling and and texting him, telling him, you're scaring me. I'm going to call the police. Please answer me. This isn't like you. And so I start calling his friends. I called his best friend. Um, I had her looking for him, calling his uh, coworkers that she worked with, and I called my cousin who he lived with, and she said, you know what? He hasn't been home. And I said, wait. At that point, you know, fear just crept in. I'm like, what do you mean he hasn't been home? She said he hasn't been home. The dog hasn't, um, King hasn't been let out or walked. I said, well, can you please take care of King? And now I've got to find my son because that, something's wrong. At that moment, I knew something was wrong. No one called me. I didn't find out about the accident. I told my niece, well, let me back up. I was getting ready to leave to go find him. His coworker said he left work at about 8 o'clock. He wasn't tired. He was fine. He said he was going to go to the gym. He was going to go home first, and he was going to go work out. And that was the last time they talked, and they would usually talk throughout the day. So I said, well, I'm going to go to his job. He worked out in Concord. I'm going to go to his job and kind of retrace his steps on how he comes home, and maybe I can see his car. At this time, we were dealing with a lot of um, tension in in the area as far as the police and different things that was going on. And, with, and I'll just be honest, with my son being a young black man, that was my first thought. Oh, my goodness, something has happened. He's had an altercation. But he's, a, he's an armed officer, and I was still worried about him. So I'm like, okay, well, maybe his car is on the side of the road. Maybe he had, you know, went fell asleep or pulled over or anything. And falling asleep is just not something that he would do. So that wasn't even on my radar. And, and of course, that's not what happened in this case, thank God. But, you know, you don't know as a parent what's happening. You, you come up with all these thoughts and all these fears and all these things creep in and, you know, try to scare you. But my niece, I told her, I said, call the police, call the hospital. I'm going to call um, the police or I'm going to call AT&T to see if they can track his phone because he didn't have his um, find my iPhone on which I used to always tell them to make sure you have that on. That's so important. Keep that on. I'm not trying to look and see where you are. I just need to know where you are if I need to get to you. And he didn't have that on. So that was nerve-wracking. And she called me back. I was, on the, I was on the phone, and she was like, Auntie, I need you to answer the phone. I found him. And she said they had him at the Carolina Medical Center in Charlotte, but they didn't know who he was at first, and they just found out who he was, and they have him listed as watch trauma. So he was pretty much a John Doe in the ER. He had so, been a – go ahead. So real quick, that was one of the questions I had. Did they not – they weren't able to trace, like, his license plate or his, his registration or something? I mean, I saw a picture of the car. It was a horrific accident. Yeah. Um, but there was no, no identification in the car? Everything was in the car. Everything was in His wallet was in the car. His phone was in the car. Um, he had his, his um, gun permit in the car. He had his gun in the car. Um, every, the car is registered to him. The tag is registered to him. Everything was on point. Why they couldn't figure out, because you could read the tag. The back of the truck wasn't hit. Yeah. So all they had to do was run his license plate. And I'm his mom. I'm on everything. So no one called me. They didn't notify me. They didn't do anything. The hospital didn't. They just went into save his life mode, right, because his 
his his um, injuries were so severe. They were in save his life mode. They weren't. Nobody called me. <laughs> well, you want you want the hospital in that mode, but you'd think the police department would call. Absolutely, and they did not. Didn't even you, try. You found out from your niece, and then you ended up going to the hospital. Yes, I was on the stretch of highway called 485, and right before I got to 77, um, I would have continued out 485 to go to Concord, but right before I got to 77, she told me that he was at the hospital, so I dashed down 47 in the express lane, and she gave me the number to call, and they said that I needed to call the trauma ICU because he had been moved there, and his accident had happened at 8.39 in the morning. I didn't find out that he had been in an accident until at 6.40 p.m. Oh, my goodness. So I hadn't heard from him all day. I started looking for him around 5. I didn't find out until 6.40 that he was at the hospital. And, of course, my heart just dropped. And I called. She was more – the nurse was so amazing. She was so concerned about me. Um before because I was driving I was like okay well I know where he is is he alive and she said yes he's alive and I said okay I'm okay please tell me what's happening I'm still coming to the hospital I'm not pulling over she wanted me to pull over and she told me what was going on by the time she got to the point to where what his injuries were I was at the hospital and that wasn't very close at all so I was speeding yes I was (laughs) but she told me she said he went into the back of a tractor-trailer truck. There was an accident up ahead, according to the police, that was like a five-car pileup, and then other cars and vehicles were slowing down or stopping or slamming on brakes or whatever. I really don't even still know what happened because he can't quite remember. He's starting Mm -hmm. to remember certain things, um, but he said that he didn't see the brake light um, come on. So he was trying to go around the truck, and then he doesn't know what happened at that point. And she said he had traumatic brain injuries. He had about four different areas of his brain that was bleeding. He had had a seizure at the accident. He had a seizure in the emergency room. He'd never had seizures before. He had his left arm wasn't moving. They didn't know at the time what was totally going on other than that there was nerve damage and they weren't getting any kind of feeling or sensation in that. But he was unconscious. He was in a coma. Um, They had him on life support. And so to hear that was a trauma for me in itself. No broken broken bones, right, amazingly? No. No internal bleeding, no broken bones, thank God, um, other than the brain trauma that was going on. So nothing that was would keep him from living other than his brain function. Yeah. And they didn't really know at that time because there was swelling on the brain what that was going to look like until a few days later. Right. And, and the compound problems, this was during COVID. Absolutely. Could you get in to see him, and and if so, when? I did not. Um, I got to the hospital. Um, Miss Kathy FaceTimed me so that I could see him over the phone because I wasn't allowed to come into the hospital. 
Um, she didn't have to do that, but she did. And it, she was like, I, I wish I could get you up here. There's nothing more. And he was just laying there. I think I sent you that picture as well. He's just laying there with all yeah. these two things and monitors hooked up, the, the life support, the ventilator thing that he was on. And um, it was just difficult to see sitting in my car in the parking garage at the hospital my son laying there and I can't touch you, I can't hold you, I can't tell you to, to come back to me, I can't try to help you. So I totally had to activate my faith and rely and trust in God and pray. That's the only way I got through it. And for two days, I sat in that parking lot waiting for his COVID. They had to do a COVID test on him or they did a COVID test on him when he came in the hospital. And I had to wait before I could see him for his results to come back. They didn't test me. Wow. <laughs> they just screened me. They screened me. But they had to test him before I was allowed in the hospital, which to me didn't make any sense. I think it was in the very beginning phases, so they didn't really know what, you know, there were so many different things that was happening. You can do this and you can't do that. And then, oh, no, you can't do this and you can't do that. So it was just really confusing at that time for everyone, so I understand. But for the first two days, I wasn't allowed into the hospital. Did you have any issue with them telling you what was going on? Because he's over 18. We brought this up in previous shows about the HIPAA releases and, and parents, if you have children over 18 but not married, you need to have some sort of uh, you know form signed by the kids saying you have access to their medical records because the hospitals don't have to tell you anything. Did you have any trouble? I didn't have, I didn't have any trouble. Bless your heart. I'm so glad. I'm so glad. I, look, I am not that mom. <laughs> you would have had more trouble trying to not tell me something and me coming up in there than you would have by not telling me. I can't even imagine them not telling me information because he's over 18. Oh, I would have had a heart attack. I, there's no way. Yeah. I would have pulled every screen known to man to make sure that happened. Just an FYI, though, for parents that do have kids over 18, you, you might want to look into the HIPAA forms because I have kids that are not married and they're over 18. And uh, I know with colleges, that no one had to tell you anything about their grades or about what they're doing. I mean, it's their, their legal age. And so just right. an FYI, I'm so glad that you didn't have that problem. So he I did have that problem in college, though. So, but I think because of the circumstances, they were different because okay. he was on support he's not able to um, comprehend or speak for himself. So they have to be able to talk to someone, which would be the next person would be me. Okay. So, um, yeah, I don't think, I think there's, I think it's different when it comes to your life or death situations. College, he had to have permission. I had to have permission in order to talk, talk to his professors, which he gave me. <laughs> so, but yeah, that, it, I think it's totally different. Okay, so he's in an extraordinary situation in ICU. You're sitting in the parking lot. At one point, when did they allow you in? The third day. The third I got a call the third day. Um, I got a call. I had been, I had been on all night um, for both nights, for two nights with watching him. She literally set up her iPad in his room so that I could watch him, and I would be on there all night long. Oh, um, wow. And breathe and I didn't get any sleep and I was in the hotel I went to a hotel close by because at the time I wasn't out here in Mooresville 
we lived in Charlotte, but I was still about 20 minutes away from the hospital. And I just, when they called me to say, you can come in, I wanted to be down the street. And so I stayed at a hotel. Um, and that Tuesday, that was a Monday morning when it happened, Tuesday evening, um, one of the nurses called me and she said, his COVID test came back negative. You can come in the morning because it was after um, visiting hours. And I could be there at 8 a.m. I was there at 7.50 because I was in the parking lot at 7 a.m. <laughs> I was in line ready to go in. And that was the hardest thing I think I, I've ever had to do was to get up the courage and to have the strength to get to go up into the trauma ICU unit to see my son. And I couldn't even, I couldn't walk through the doors. Couldn't walk through the doors. I, I couldn't breathe. And I had a young lady by the name of Miss Shannon who sat at the front desk. And she wasn't even supposed to be there, but I thank God for her. And she told me where he was, and she saw me hesitating. She got up, and she was like, okay. It's okay. I get it. She didn't have to, I didn't have to tell her what was wrong. She said, well, let me, let me show you around the hospital, the trauma floor, so you'll know where everything is. And she walked me through. She's like, okay, this is the bathroom. <laughs> this is where we have a refrigerator here if you need any snacks or drinks or anything. And this is where the nurses triage is. And we have this over here. There's a waiting room on this side. And before you know it, we were standing in front of his room. And she said, okay, are you ready? And I was like, okay, I'm ready. So she took my mind off of my fears on what I was going to see. And she said, he's unconscious. He may or may not be able to hear you, but I need you to not freak out. Wow. <laughs> and I said, well, I've already seen him through FaceTime. So I knew the condition that he was in, and I had already had time to process that. So when I walked into the room, it didn't freak me out and I didn't get, you know, I didn't start having a, a whole heart attack and crying and screaming and everything. I went in very quietly and I kind of just took it all in and I sat there and I just looked at him. So I had to put my things down and the nurse came in, Miss Kathy, and I met her and, you know, I was trying to breathe. I think it was just taking it all in and trying not to cry. I did cry. It was, it was tears, but it was just a hurtful cry. Um, aside being able to just be in his presence in the room and she came in and she kind of explained to me what was going on and she said it's about time for us to try and wake him up and we've got to clean out his stomach and pump out the stuff that's in his fluids and stuff so it might he might have some jerking reactions but that's just his body responding to what we're doing not necessarily his brain waking him up so it was just a, re a response, and it was time for them to do that by the time I got in there. And so she didn't want me to um, be in there, but I wasn't going anywhere. Mm -hmm. And I held his hand while she was doing that, and I just kind of, I, I was like, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be here. I don't care what it looks like, what it feels like, I'm going to be here. And that's what I did, and I stood through it, and I actually recorded part of it. I recorded and I, I and now people are like, how could you record? I've recorded Jabari his entire life. It's natural. It's a natural instinct for me to record him doing everything. So for me to record was for him to see where he was when he came out of it because I knew he was going to come out of it. Any um, doubt, any doubt in your mind that he wouldn't? At first, there was. 
because I didn't, when I didn't know what was going on. And I kept telling everybody, if I could just get in there and touch my son and hold his hand and talk to him, he will wake up. Mm-hmm. I had no, I have that much faith in God. And I knew that he heard my prayers and I knew that he had my son and that he was going to protect him. I knew that once I got in there and my son heard my voice, he would wake up. Did the staff encourage you to talk to him or play music or do anything? They they said that he could have um, stimulation every two hours, but not too much. They wanted his brain to rest, I suppose. They wanted his brain to rest. They wanted him to heal. He just kind of needed time um, to heal. You said he did. He did wake up on that third day. He did. On his own, or did me from me holding his hand, talking wow. to him, and he and I. She she did the thing where he she pulled the stuff out of his stomach and he started coughing and and everything, but he wasn't awake and he wasn't pulling breaths on his own. And I grabbed his hand and I said, "Jay, it's mom. It's mom. I need you to hear me." I need you to get up. I'm here. You're safe. It's okay. And I just talked to him. I think I talked to him for a good 30 or 45 minutes before he started opening his eyes. And his eyes were kind of moving around as I was talking. So it was like he was finding his I, I think of it as him finding his way back to me because you could just see his eyes starting to move and they hadn't been. And she told me, and I even have her recorded saying, she was like, he hasn't had any brain activity like this in the last four hours since we started talking and trying him this morning, and definitely nothing overnight. So she said, already, since you've gotten here, his levels have improved. And I knew it. And then he woke up, and all the doctors and nurses started running in, and he was trying to sit up and trying to pull stuff and they had his hands in, in restraints and these big things that look like boxing gloves so that he wouldn't hurt himself because they said if once he wakes up, if he woke up, that he would be traumatized. He would be trying to figure out where he was because he doesn't know what happened. He's been unconscious since the, accident, since the scene, since on the scene. He's, he pulled out of it so quickly. Right, because you were told originally that it, it, he could be in there months. And so with, because there were four, there was severe trauma, they did not know how he would recover. It could be six months. It could be three months. They didn't know. They were not sure. It's, everybody is different, but generally speaking, it could be between three to six months before he could come out of that coma. Well, that wasn't his plan. <laughs> wasn't God's plan at all. God's or, plan or, or Jabari's or plan. Or Jabari's. Jabari's like, I'm getting up. I'm getting out of here. You know, I got to go. My mama's here. I, I'm all right. <laughs> I got to go. Well, bless your heart. And, and I mean, our hour has flown by. But what I do want to oh do, because um, he re- he's still in recovery, but he's got out of the hospital quickly, when it went into like an outpatient thing. Where is he now? He's at work. <laughs> oh, really? Right now. Yes, he is currently back at work. Um, he lives with me still. He is. He was in the hospital in the hospital for eleven days, and then he went into rehab for another three and a half weeks. They weren't expecting any of that. His progress every single day 
shocked the doctors and nurses so much so that they had the students coming in, looking at him and evaluating his situation because it tra- it changed drastically every single day. He improved in therapy every single day. Um, they weren't allowed, they weren't supposed to have me in the rehab hospital, but they noticed when I was there, he worked harder. When I wasn't there, he didn't want to do anything. He didn't want to get up. He didn't want to, you know, participate. And so they allowed me to be there. And so I was there and I pushed him and I'm like, you are beyond amazing. That is what your name is. He also raps and writes his own music and sings and everything. And I'm like, that's your name. That's the songs that you write about. You've lived, you put your life and your, your things that you're going through in your music and not even knowing that you were going to need your own music to get through it. So you need to get up. You're beyond amazing for a reason. And I would push him, and I would be right there by his side. I was like, I got my sneakers on. What are we doing today? We walking today? We trying to walk? We getting up? He couldn't even hold himself up in the bed. And so he just, you know, he fought through, and he, he willed himself out of there. And when we got, they didn't know um, I moved, and they didn't know what type of environment, well, what type of status he would be in. So I needed to have a place for him to come home to that would have access to his wheelchair. Well, I wheeled him out of the hospital on that day, and he was able to get up and walk with his quad cane. Everybody was shocked. Everybody was shocked after 32 days total. And he so had now, traumatic brain injuries. <laughs> so now, was, was there any residual damage from the TBI, or is he, does he remember any of it either? He doesn't remember the accident exactly. Um, he hasn't lost his memory, but when he went unconscious, that's like he doesn't remember how it happened. Okay. And he doesn't, he sees flashes of things now, I think, finally. Um, he does have nerve damage in his left arm, and he has uh, brachial plexus in his left um, shoulder that is, healed, that is healing very well because he's able to do push-ups now. But he still has the – he had shattered glass in his arm that I think damaged his um, nerve in his arm that goes down into his left hand. And so his left hand is kind of – his fingers are curled. It's numb around the, the base of the hand and up through his arm. But he's starting to get feeling back in there, so I'm thinking that the nerves are regenerating. But he does still have that, and he did have an MCL tear in his knee that is healing so he kind of has just a little gait when he walks. But other than that, his mind is clear. He's, he's doing pretty well. Um, he's back to working. He's able to drive again. He hasn't had any more seizures. I mean, he's a miracle. Well, I'd love to talk to him at some point, too, because it's, it's the resiliency and, you know, moving forward. And, and I'm going to let this show go on a little bit longer just because I think it's such an interesting conversation. But I am going to open it up to um, our guests that are on if they have any questions. I have uh, one of my, Deborah has come on and I'm going to, she actually. Well, what an amazing uh, story of love and I commend both of you for your tenacity and your faith and I thank God for this story and this recovery. My question is, what, uh, if any, uh, potential does he have to pursuing uh, NFL dreams or even uh, some type of coaching within the NFL if he's not able to play? Well, he is still coaching um, the Little League football. He is still a part of the Charlotte Thunder pro team. 
Um, they just recognized him over the weekend for his resiliency and being there and being a part of the team, which is where he did the 22 push-up challenge, which shocked the world, shocked everybody. But he wow. wants to still play football. I can't fathom ever allowing that to happen, but he's grown, and he has to find his own way. Um, so he's determined to at least push, push himself and work back to where he can get his body in shape to be able to train. If he cannot play football again, I don't know whether he will be allowed to or not. Um, I know that he would love to if he is okay. But as we've seen with his recovery, nothing is impossible with God. And so I don't deter him from that. He knows how I feel. I voice my concerns. But, I mean, this, this young man has made it when they told him he couldn't. And things that he's doing now, they never thought that he would do. His neurologist is in total shock. Like, he, his mental capacity, his mental stability, everything about him is on, on point, on track. And he's, there's a shock. So I won't tell him not to play. I, he knows the risk and he knows the dangers, but it's what he loves to do. Um, he has thought about coaching professionally uh, with the arena team. They told him that he would always have a place with them. And so I think we're looking into that going forward, but he is definitely still mentoring and training and, and coaching the kids, and he still has his Beyond Athletics Foundation football combine that we did last October right after he got out of the hospital. He'll have another one this October. So he's still going to be very active on the coaching level. We just don't know how far up he's going to go, but I don't see any cap on that. I think that he can go all the way. So, Michelle, again, we could talk a long time. This is the most amazing story. Uh, I, I just give you credit as a coach mom or a mom coach <laughs> for the love and support that you give him. I, I wrote down here the value of support and the value of family. Um, actually, we have another caller. Donna is coming in. Let me get Donna. Donna, are you there? What is your next step for you and Jabari? Because you're always by his side and you're always doing things with him and for him, what is your next step to make this grander than what it already is in your support and love for your son? Well, I created um, an event that we are putting together um, for Jabari. He told me a couple of days ago after coming to, um, I guess after a conversation with God that he has and realizing where he is in his life and what he wants for his future, that he wants to be able to speak. He said, he said, Mom, the next time you go out on tour, maybe we can go out on tour together because you can speak and tell your story, and then maybe I can come behind you and speak and share mine. And that sent me into overdrive. It was like, oh, my goodness. You want to speak? You want to share your story? You want to encourage and uplift others? I'm going to create an event. <laughs> to make this happen, and that's what I'm in the process of doing. I've um, booked a venue. I've scheduled it for July 23rd, and that's going to be his very first speaking engage engagement coming up, and I'm so excited for him because people need to hear his side of the story. He's such a motivational person, and he's so inspiring, and he, you can see his love for life and his newfound uh, reality of life has totally changed, and I'm so proud of him. But I'll be there encouraging him 100% of the way, 3,000% of the way, um, just making sure that I support him, making sure that I push him and continuing to be there for him. 
So that's what's next on, on, on the agenda. Thank you, Donna. And that's a fantastic, um, fantastic event. It's, it's so interesting that so many of us have sons that have been through experiences that they would benefit from speaking up and standing up about it. Um, so, boy, I, I encourage you to do that. And when you come down to South Florida, let me know because I've got a, my sidekick youngest. Well, we'll get on stage with you. It'd be lots of fun. So, well, we need to plan that, Debbie, for sure. Yeah, we do. We do. You know, it's amazing. And that's what comes out of these great collaborations and, and just sitting down and finding out about somebody on a, on a more genuine level than just, you know, Facebook, hi, how are you? So right. we, thank you, Michelle. Um, thanks, everybody, for, for listening to Stand Up and Speak Up. We are dedicated to encouraging you to remove the mask of embarrassment and to being your best self. This episode has been sponsored by BenfoComplete.com, a vitamin supplement company that supports happy and healthy hands and feet for those with neuropathy. If any of you or any of anyone that you know struggles with the pins and needles or numbness in their hands and feet, check out our Benfo TME products at BenfoComplete.com and use the special code STANDUP for 5% discount on your purchase. Again, thanks everybody for being with us today. Go to my website, thewomanbehindthesmile.com for additional information and resources. Subscribe to the YouTube channel and watch the replay of this with pictures and uh, enjoy your great day. Again, thanks everybody for being with us. Stand up and speak up. Beware and be aware of those around you. Have a great day. Thanks. Mm -hmm.